In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. Guys, Mark chapter 5 is a really, really weird chapter. I don't mean bad weird, and I'm not trying to be inappropriate when I say that. It's not like a, like a sideshow weird, or like that cousin that everybody has that comes in from out of town around Thanksgiving and has all the piercings. I'm not talking about that guy, not that kind of weird. Mark 5 is weird like, like a duck-billed platypus is weird. You're looking at it and you're trying to make sense of something that looks like a bunch of random things just thrown together. I mean, a story, stories that we all know, they usually follow some sort of progression, some sequence of events. Usually there's a person or a group of people and something happens to them. And whatever it is that happens to them then becomes the catalyst for what happens next. Almost every single story you can think of follows this very, very simple framework. But Mark 5 doesn't tell a story like that at all. Mark chapter 5 seems to have three different stories. Stories that appear to be disconnected from one another, yet the stories are told on top of one another. The very first story is about a man possessed by a legion of demons. The second is about a leader of a synagogue who begs Jesus to help him. And the third is about the healing of a woman with an issue of blood. And these three stories aren't just kind of different. No, they are very different in some major ways. For instance, think about the characters in each story. In the first story, there's a nameless wild man. In the second story, you have the ruler of a synagogue that's mentioned by name, Jairus. By the way, be prepared for me to mispronounce that all morning. I'm from Mississippi, so it's going to be Jarius or something else like that. But in the third story, there is a nameless woman. The tension or problem in each story is also very different. In the first, Jesus is dealing with possession. The second story, Jesus deals with death. And in the third story, it's a healing. Even the way that Jesus achieves the miraculous is different in each story. In the first, Jesus casts demons into a herd of pigs. In the second, he raises a little girl from the dead. And in the third, a woman is healed just by touching the garments of Jesus. And I could go on and on like this. I've listed six more key differences between these three stories, and I'm sure if we wanted, we could list 15 more. So these stories are very, very different. But for as different as they may be, there is actually one continuous theme that runs through all three stories. And what I want to do this morning with you is to uncover that theme. I want to do so by going through each of the stories that's found in Mark chapter 5 and look at them one at a time. So if you have not yet... Please turn with me to Mark chapter 5, starting in the very first verse. Let's get to work. So, Mark 5 begins with Jesus and his disciples finally setting foot on the distant shores of the Sea of Galilee. And almost immediately, they meet a demon-possessed man. And this isn't your typical possessed guy. No, 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 no. This demon-possessed man is next level. He's roaming the hills. He's howling in the night. He's cutting himself with stones. And by the way, he lives in a cemetery. If you wanted to construct the epitome of a Jewish boogeyman, I don't think you could do any better than this. But when this crazed, howling, self-mutilating demoniac lays eyes on Jesus, he understands right away who he's dealing with. The demon-possessed man runs toward Jesus, falls at his feet and says, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? The demons that are in this man knew exactly who Jesus was. They knew him to be the son of the Most High. And as the son of the Most High, Jesus cast the demons out of the man. The man who was once possessed was now free. 
So how does this man, who spent months, maybe even years of his life in opposition to God, respond to the Son of God standing before him? Look in verse 18. It reads, As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. He did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. The man is freed from his possession and his very first response isn't to sing or dance. He doesn't celebrate or run to tell people what happened to him. No, what's the very first thing the text says the man does? He begs Jesus that he might be with him. This man responded to being freed by a legion of demons by asking Jesus if he could just stay near him, if he could just be close to him and follow him. And as far as I'm concerned, that is exactly right. That is 100% correct. Here's what the demon-possessed man gets right. You don't need something from Jesus. You need Jesus. Jesus doesn't want something from you. He wants you. If you think something like God's grace or forgiveness are like things that God gives you, if you think that God's mercy and love for you are like things that come out of God and they float down to you somehow, then with all due respect, my friends, you are mistaken. When God shows grace to you, when God forgives your sins and has mercy upon you and loves you, he's not giving you things. He's giving you himself. He's not giving you a thing called love. No, he is love. And as a God of love, he makes himself present to you. God is giving you his very life. He's giving you his very heart and mind. And what Jesus asks for in return is that we do the same. He doesn't want something from you. He wants you. And when the possessed man, the man who was just possessed by a whole legion of demons is healed, he gets it exactly right. All he wants is to be with Jesus, and all he has to offer is himself. And that's okay, because that's all Jesus is asking for. This man, possessed by demons, got it exactly right. What about the next story? What about Jairus and his daughter? Well, let's look. So Jesus and the disciples, they cross back across the Sea of Galilee, and they land on the other side. As soon as they touch shore, a great crowd gathers around them, and among them is a man named Jairus. He's one of the rulers of the synagogue. Jairus runs out to Jesus, falls at his feet, and says, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be healed and be well and live. Now what the text seems to indicate that as as soon as Jairus says this, both Jesus and Jairus set off immediately. And that makes sense, right? If I came to you and I said, quick, come with me, my child is choking, they're about to die, I would hope that you responded quickly. I would hope that you would get up immediately and run as fast as you could towards my dying child. I would like to think that as you ran, you were of a singular focus with one thing on your mind. How can I get to Bubba's kid as fast as I possibly can before it's too late? That's exactly what you would expect to see in this story. Jesus and Jairus running straight to this little girl's aid. But this story doesn't happen like that, does it? In this story, just as Jesus and Jairus start making their way through the crowd, just as they start to make their way to the side of a little girl that's dying, Jesus stops in his tracks and says, Who touched me? Can you imagine 
the look on Jairus' face when Jesus stops and asks this question, who touched me? If, if you and I are running through a crowd of people in order to save my child from dying, and then you stopped and said, hang on, did you hear that? I, guys, whatever I say next is not going to be pleasant to you. I would think you're playing some sort of cruel joke or that you were secretly being evil or maybe you're psychotic. I don't know, but there's not a person in this room that would think asking such a silly question as that in that moment was the right thing to do. Jesus asking who touched me in the midst of this crowd must have been bewildering for everyone to hear. It was certainly confusing for the disciples. It was confusing, it seems, for every single person that heard it. Every single person who heard this question was confused except for one person. The one person who wasn't confused by this question was the one person that Jesus was talking about. The woman who had just been healed by reaching out and touching his garments. She wasn't confused by this question at all. No, she was the only one who truly understood it. What was her response? Look in verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She knew what she had done, and Jesus had called her on it. She knew that the law of Moses said that this disease that she had made her unclean, and the law of Moses would have required her to stay at the outskirts of town away from other people. It would have required her to stay away from people in general, lest she make them unclean as well. But here she is. And not only is she in the midst of the crowd, not only is she running the risk of making every single one of them unclean as well, she does all of that while reaching out to touch the garment of someone she knows is a holy man. She dares to extend her hand and touch someone pure and dares to risk defiling someone holy. But judging from the response of Jesus, he didn't seem to mind at all that she had touched him, does he? Look in verse 34. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus doesn't react like it was even possible that this unclean woman could have made him unclean. He doesn't seem to be the least bit concerned that this unclean woman could have compromised his holiness or purity in any way. As a matter of fact, the opposite seems to be true. When this unclean woman came into contact with the purity of Jesus, Jesus wasn't sullied. No, the woman was cleaned. And guys, as far as I'm concerned, that is exactly right. That is 100% correct. Here's what this story gets right. This woman was the very definition of unclean, but that did not stop her from reaching out to Jesus. As a matter of fact, her motivation for reaching out to Jesus was the fact that she was so unclean. Maybe you know someone like this woman. Maybe you know someone that's unclean and desperate. They're wretched and they're eat up with sin and shame and their whole life seems like a dead end and they know it. And the only thing that their future seems to hold for them is just more of the same. There's so many people like that. There's so many people that feel like they've sinned so much or that their problems are so grotesque and unattractive that God must find them revolting. They see themselves as so degraded and ugly that coming into the presence of God seems absolutely impossible. That reaching out to Jesus isn't possible in their present sinful state. Before they can even think about reaching out to Jesus, they think what they need to do is to clean themselves up first. Do you know people like that? I know I do. 
There are millions of people in this world, maybe even a few in this room, that are convinced they need to straighten themselves out before God can even tolerate looking at them. But my friends, here is the truth. The things about you that are shameful and cause you to hide your face from the Lord, the things that are sinful and make you unclean before a holy God can only be straightened out and purified in one place. Your sin has nowhere else to go other than to the feet of Jesus. Whatever garbage you throw at him, whatever sickness you have, however sinful you may be, God will not be made unclean when you take your impurities to him. His purity is greater than your uncleanness. God's mercy is greater than your sinfulness. The faithfulness of God is greater than your capacity to betray him. And the story of this woman with the issue of blood gets all of that exactly right. But as this story of the woman concludes, look what happens in verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. I'll trouble the teacher anymore. Jairus had feared that this may happen. He was probably terrified at the thought of hearing those exact words and now he'd just heard them. His worst nightmare had come true. His little girl was dead and there was nothing that he could do about it. Inside of the whole town, Jairus had thrown himself at the feet of Jesus and he had begged Jesus for help. As one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus is risking everything by consorting with Jesus like this. The religious elite of Israel, they were not friends of Jesus, and Jairus knew it. Jairus knew that if he went to Jesus and publicly asked him for help, no matter how it turned out, he would face severe backlash from people like the Pharisees, people like the Sadducees. And as Jairus heard the news that his daughter was dead, not only had he risked everything in his reputation on Jesus being who he said he was, now it looks like he was wrong. His daughter was dead, and Jesus had done nothing about it. It seemed like everything was ruined. It seemed like everything was absolutely lost. But before Jairus had time to react to the news, Jesus tells him something that must have kindled a slight flame in the heart of Jairus, a small hope in his heart. Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. And at that, they set off together to go see his daughter. Jesus arrives at the house of Jairus, and he arrives with James and John and Peter. The house is filled with mourners, as you would expect, but Jesus asks all of them to wait outside. Jesus, James, John, Peter, and the little girl's two parents, they enter the house, and for the very first time, you can imagine Jairus seeing the embodiment of everything he had feared. There was his little girl laying there, dead. So what does Jesus do? He walks over to this little girl. Jesus walks over and stands before the absolute worst thing that's ever happened to Jairus. And he picks up her cold, lifeless hand and says, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And to the shock and amazement of every single person in that room, the little girl got up and lived again. Jairus had reached out in desperation to Jesus. Jairus didn't throw himself at the feet of Jesus and say, teach me, Rabbi, did he? Jesus didn't, Jairus didn't fall before the feet of Jesus and say, forgive me of my many sins. Jairus didn't confess him to be the Christ or seek to follow Jesus. No, Jairus fell at the feet of Jesus because he had nowhere left to turn. 
He had reached the end of his rope and everything was crashing in around him and then he went to Jesus. But Jesus doesn't even bat an eye. Jesus didn't hold Jairus accountable because he looked for help everywhere else first. Jesus didn't give Jairus a hard time about being picked last and he never mentioned that it was the fear of Jairus, that it was the fear that his daughter's illness may claim her life that ultimately drove Jairus to Jesus. Jesus doesn't mention a word about any of it. You know what Jesus does instead? He responds to Jairus with love. He responded by walking straight into Jairus' worst nightmare with him. And as far as I'm concerned, that is exactly right. That is 100% correct. If you reach out to Jesus in desperation, if you reach out to Jesus because you're tired and you've tried everything else and you have nowhere left to turn, he will not take offense of being your last pick. He will not hold it against you that you sought help everywhere else before coming to him. No. He will respond to you just as he did to Jairus, by walking with you into the deepest tragedies of your life because he wishes, those, he wishes to heal those tragedies in ways that you cannot imagine. And this is what I think is holding this entire chapter together. It does not matter how someone comes to Jesus Only that they do. Are you demon-possessed? Doesn't matter. Come on. Are you so unclean that no one wants anything to do with you? Doesn't matter. Come on. Are you so desperate that in in need of Jesus' help that, that you look everywhere and he's your very last stop? Doesn't matter. Just go to him. This chapter is about three very different people. Each have their own particular needs. Each have their own history. Each are full of their own fears and traumas. And each go to Jesus for different reasons. Each are taking different paths to Jesus. But what unifies this whole chapter is that every single one of them shares one thing. Every single one of them fell at the feet of Jesus and cried out for his help. Every single one of them went to Jesus and every single one of them was received by Jesus. The good news I have for you this day is that nothing has changed. Whatever the circumstances are that have brought you to the feet of Jesus, they don't seem to matter to Jesus all that much. What seems to matter to him most is that you finally come to him, that you were finally at his feet. Brothers, sisters, I don't have to tell you or make an argument for you about how rough life can be. This world is filled with a multitude of cruelties. It's filled with tragedy and heartache, and every single one of us have felt the deep pain this world can inflict. Every single one of us has been shaped by the tragedies of our own life. But can I tell you, there is no tragedy in this life, there is no cruelty in this world, there is no sin in your heart that Jesus can't redeem. And it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what road you've taken to get to him. It doesn't matter what people around you think. It doesn't matter how deep your problems go. None of it matters. What matters is that you take the full weight of your sin and pain to the feet of Jesus and you say, here. Here's all my garbage. Here's all the things that make me unlovely and ashamed. And you know how Jesus will respond to that? He'll respond by looking you in your eyes and lifting you up and saying, welcome home, my child. If you just go to him. I pray that we never stop taking our sin and our shame to the feet of Jesus. Because the feet of Jesus are the only place we have to take them in the first place.
Amen.